Father, your faithfulness is great. We confess that we often fail to recognize your great acts of love and mercy and faithfulness in our lives. So we pray that this morning you would give us eyes of faith to see your faithfulness to us as we observe your acts in the book of Ruth. Would your spirit use your word to open our eyes and to guide us and to change us and to help us respond appropriately to your faithfulness. In Christ we pray, amen. You may be seated. Left to our own devices, we would never detect God's acts of faithfulness in the events of history. We just wouldn't. With our faithless eyes and our hearts of stone that filter the events of history through our minds, the faithfulness of God is simply obscured because of our sinfulness. But we have the word of God that interprets these events for us. So in the word of God, we have things like the epistles that give us propositional truths that help us understand the world around us, We have wisdom literature that speaks poetically of God's faithfulness and goodness in our lives. And in the accounts of history in the Bible, we have a narratival interpretation of events that displays God's faithfulness in ways that we would never see. So we are turning to Ruth chapter 1 this morning. And we're going to look at what is a true account in history, but it's more than just a bare record of fact of what happened. It's a theological interpretation of events that displays God's faithfulness, and it reveals our human inclinations to reject God and his kindness and his mercy to us. So I want to, this morning, point out God's faithfulness in two ways. God is faithfulness when he di- he's faithful when he disciplines us, and he's faithful when he's merciful to us. And then, in the end, we need to determine how are we going to respond to these acts of faithfulness. Whether discipline or mercy, we must respond to God's work in our lives and in the events of history. Now, as we turn to the book of Ruth, chapter 1, the very first words of the book are that in the days when the judges ruled, and, and that sets us up to understand the rest of the book. It's almost like when you're watching a movie and there's the, the print that comes up on the screen and it says something like World War II era Germany. Well, everything that's about to be played in that scene of the film, you now have a category to process that with. So when you see a crowd raising their hands to a short guy in a mustache, you're not thinking, that guy is worthy of respect. You're thinking, that's that's an evil dude, and I know that because this is World War II era Germany. And and when we get this line, in the times of the judges, it frames everything else that, that we need to know. It provides a wealth of information. And here are a few pieces of information that you need to know. The first is that this story is taking place in what we call the Old Covenant. And Dave read of the Old Covenant in Deuteronomy 8, and there were stipulations that went on in this covenant where God would bring blessing to his people as they responded in faithfulness and obedience to him. So the very first words of Deuteronomy 8 were that if they obeyed these commandments, they would multiply and they would live. 
Well, if they disobey, there are curses attached to these covenant stipulations where they would find death and they would not take possession of the land. They wouldn't multiply. And God would humble them, particularly through famine. So he did this in the wilderness. He humbled them through famine so that they would learn that they needed more than bread to live by. Well, when we get to the times of the judges, these people are under those same covenant stipulations. So when we start to see the blessings or the curses of the covenant, we should connect it to the faithfulness or lack of faithfulness in Israel at that time. So we'll, we'll see here famine. We'll see here lack of offspring, lack of children. Well, these are the kinds of things connected to the blessings of the old covenant. And when it's not there, we should look critically upon the people who are failing to live in faithfulness to God. So, so that's the covenantal context. But then as we dig deeper into the times of the judges, just a quick reading of judges will show you that over and over and over again, people live very wicked lives. They reject God, and over time, he raises up some judges who restore order and faithfulness for a period, but then people go on to do things that are worse and worse, and even the best of the judges are really not good people. So if you think of Gideon, maybe the one that we all recognize, well, this guy was raised up, he did something good, but then he went on for the rest of his days to lead the people of Israel to worship idols. He, he worshiped Baal, Baal, the rest of their days. And um, he, he was problematic. So even these individuals who make a step forward in faithfulness to God in the times of the judges really revert back to their idolatry and unfaithfulness. So we rightly describe the time of the judges as a really dark time, and we should connect that to the unfaithfulness of the people involved. So in Ruth 1, when we read that in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, we need to hear the people of Israel were unfaithful to God. And God was seeking to humble them as he acted in faithfulness to them. This, this is an act of discipline. And I think this is probably the biggest jump that we need to make in our minds is to understand that God's faithfulness is not just faithfulness to bring blessing, but it's also faithfulness to bring discipline. That discipline was meant to restore Israel back to relationship and fellowship with God. It was meant to bring them back into blessing, and God would be faithful to do that as they responded appropriately. But when they failed to respond to the covenant rightly and to God rightly, God was faithful to exercise discipline in their lives. Now, this, this is significant because it's very different from the way God related to the people who were in the land prior to, to Israel. How did God relate to those individuals? Not in discipline that restored them to himself, but in judgment that destroyed them and drove them from the land. So, so God's faithfulness in discipline is evidenced right away in, in these words that there was a famine in the land. But then the story begins to develop and we start to see the, the matrix of God's faithfulness and the lack of faithfulness on the part of his people. So there's this man of Bethlehem in Judah who went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. So, so this family, in response to the famine, leaves the land. Well, this is the exact opposite of what we know God's desire for these people is. 
it's almost as if they're putting themselves in a self-imposed exile. They're, they go to Moab. In, in the book of Judges, this guy, King Eglon, is the king of Moab. He takes over Israel for a time. So these individuals are putting themselves not under the kingship of God, but under the kingship of the Moabites. And this is ironic because the, the names of these individuals say something about what should be or, or really about what happens. So this guy, Elimelech, his name means my God is king. So in this story, you have the ir- irony of my God is king leaving Israel to go under the protection of the king of Moab. And then his wife's name is Naomi. This means something like pleasant. And then their children were named Malon and Kilian. And these can be uh, interpreted in various ways, but probably something like sickly and weak. So the narrator is painting these for us very clearly. And and he's showing that these people, uh, my God is king and pleasant, who we would expect to respond to God's discipline in repentance. These individuals leave the land and they take their children out. And um, we can speculate about why they named their kids weak and sickly. My, my guess is this. My guess is that um, Elimelech and Naomi were born during a time when Israel was repentant during the time of the judges, and their parents named them rightly. My God is king and pleasant. But in these cycles of sin that took place in Israel, I, I think those blessings of living in the land and multiplying were not met. And so probably Elimelech and Naomi had children who had died. That would not have been uncommon. And there was starting to be a root of bitterness in them so that these children are named according to the circumstances of their birth. They they were probably born weak and sickly and there was no hope for them. So this cynical couple who is not submitting to the kingship of God names their kids weak and sickly. Well, this goes on to foreshadow what happens next. And we read in verse three, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi died and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Malon and Killian died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Well, in these brief sentences, the narrator is expecting us to understand it in light of the covenantal situation. And if the covenantal promises are that if you obey God, you will live and multiply in the land, and and there's death and lack of multiplication, we, we see that there's sin going on in these people's lives, and they need to respond to this discipline appropriately. So Elimelech dies, leaving Naomi and their two children behind. And then these two guys take Moabite women. And this is against the law of God. They were not to marry foreigners because those foreigners would lead them into idolatry. But they take these wives. And then there's this brief statement that they lived there about 10 years. And then both of these guys died. Well, during those 10 years, there were no children in these marriages. another evidence of God's faithful disciplining hand in their lives. And when they detected that their father died and that they weren't having children, they should have responded to God's discipline by repenting and returning to the land. But, But they didn't. And then these two children died. And then Naomi is left behind Without her sons and her husband, she's, she's left behind with these two women who she has no DNA connection to at all. So if we're looking at Naomi's life, we are hoping that Naomi will repent and return to Israel and return to the Lord. So the narrator sets us up for this expectation as we start to read the next line. 
Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. But what we hope to hear is that she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from Moab because she repented of her sin and she returned to the Lord. But, but she didn't do it for that reason. We don't think that her return was a return of repentance. It was a return of convenience. There's now food in the land again, so let, let's go back there now. It wasn't a proper response to God's discipline. So when we look at Naomi's life up to this point in these circumstances, there are several ideas that we need to hold in mind as we consider her failure to repent and as we consider God's faithfulness in discipline. First, we need to work hard to understand God's discipline as an act of faithfulness. We should not limit our conception of God's faithfulness to his acts of blessing. His acts of discipline are acts of faithfulness that were intended to draw Israel back to himself, and his acts of discipline in our own lives are intended to restore us and to bring us back to him. So the author of Hebrews helps us out here in Hebrews 12, 7 through 13, by pointing out that God disciplines those he loves, and and he disciplines those he calls as sons. So, so there's the idea that if there is not discipline in our lives, then perhaps we're not relating to God as his children, and he's not relating to us as his father. Sometimes this discipline is formative, other times it's corrective, but always for our good and our holiness as it draws us back to our loving and faithful father. So when we think about discipline, we need to reject the notion that discipline is evil and bad and instead understand God's discipline as a work of grace and faithfulness in our lives. Second, we need to grow in our sensitivity to detecting God's faithfulness in our lives. We need to grow in our ability to detect God's discipline in our lives. I think one of the reasons that the author of Ruth does not include very specific lines saying, now the Lord disciplined this family by blank, is because we're intended to reflect on this and to detect God's discipline on our own as we read this story with with our knowledge from the Pentateuch in mind. But what does that mean for us? How, How do we detect God's discipline in our lives? Because we're not people of the old covenant. We don't have prophets declaring to us that this famine is because of your unfaithfulness in this particular area, or the fact that you got a flat tire on your way to work this week meant that you sinned against your spouse. We don't have anything like that. So how do we detect God's, faith, or God's faithfulness to discipline us in our own lives? Once again, the author of Hebrews helps us. And in Hebrews 12:7, this individual writes that we must endure suffering as discipline. So where in the old covenant there were particular things like famine and death and lack of children that would indicate God's disciplining hand, in the new covenant, the New Testament authors give us the idea that we should just perceive all suffering as God's disciplining hand in our lives. Now there's a difference there that there's probably not a particular sin to connect each one of those things to, but instead we are supposed to grab onto these bits of suffering in our life as a reminder to humble ourselves before the Lord, to repent, and to know that God is faithful in our lives every step of the way to draw us closer to him. 
So the author of Hebrews said, endure suffering as discipline. This, this individual is trying to get us to see that any negative thing you sense in your life is something that you need to take as a gift from the Lord and to use it. God doesn't waste any of the suffering in your life, and you shouldn't either. You should respond to it appropriately with humility and repentance and dependence on the Lord as you seek to see holiness and the fruit of righteousness in your life. So if you experience hardship this week, don't start to think that that hardship is an evidence of God's absence in your life. Instead, look at that precisely as an evidence of God's fatherly, loving discipline in your life to draw you closer to him. If you can start to see the hardships in your life that way, it changes everything. Because God is with you and he is for you every step of the way. So we need to detect God's faithfulness through discipline in our lives. And and we need to respond appropriately, seeing him as our loving father. But God is not only faithful in discipline. He's also faithful in mercy. And that bears itself out in this story as well. So as we continue to read there, as we already did, Naomi returned not because she was responding to God's faithfulness in discipline, but because of the evident mercy of God in visiting his people and giving them food. So she set out, verse 7, from the place where she was with her two daughters, and they went to return to the land of Judah. So God has acted without Naomi doing anything to repent or to deserve this act of kindness. God has acted in mercy in her lives. Now, ostensibly, Israel as a nation has repented sometime during this time. God has responded to that faithfully by removing the famine and giving them food. But it's significant that Naomi was not part of that. Where everyone else stayed behind and received the gift of God's presence as he visited visited them with food, Naomi was gone. Yet, she's being welcomed into this mercy nonetheless. She's permitted to return to the land. God does not strike her dead. He does not kill her as Elimelech and her children had died. Yet we start to question, is Naomi's return in response to God's mercy a repentant return? And I, I don't think so. And I know that this is perhaps somewhat, you know, up for interpretation. But I want to give you a four, four reasons why I think Naomi's return here should be looked at critically, not as repentance. First, as Naomi returned, she encourages her daughters-in-law to rest in, find rest in the homes of husbands in the land of Moab. And in fact, in, at the end of chapter 1 in verse 15, she even goes so far as to praise Orpah, this daughter-in-law, for returning to her people and to her God, this God Kemosh, the God of Moab. So Naomi, who's an Israelite, who has the responsibility to bear God to the nations, is now encouraging her daughter-in-law to return to the false gods and find rest in the home of a false, uh, false god-worshipping husband instead of finding rest in the, in the true God, the only God who can give rest. So number one, Naomi returned, urges her daughters-in-law to return to Moab. But then second, I think Naomi reveals her doubt in God's goodness, mercy, and steadfast love by setting up Orpah and Ruth's acts of kindness as the standard by which Yahweh, the, the covenant God, ought to operate. 
So she says in, uh, in chapter one here, as she's talking to them in verse eight, go return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. So she's setting up the standard of loving kindness and faithfulness. The, the standard is now Orpah and Ruth, these Moabite women, and may God act as good as you've acted. She's not seen God's mercy or faithfulness at all. She only sees these things appearing in the lives of Ruth and Orpah. I think she's totally blind to God's faithfulness and mercy in her life. Then third, Naomi blames Orpah and Ruth for the suffering that she's endured, or at least she correlates her suffering with them. So at the end of verse 13, she tells them that it is exceedingly bitter bitter for me for your sake, or because of you, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And depending on the translation that you read, this is rendered different ways. It is really challenging. But I think the way that ESV renders it here, we get the idea that Ruth is looking, or Naomi is looking on Ruth and Orpah with bitterness, blaming them for their suffering rather than acknowledging her own need to repent before the Lord. But then finally, upon Naomi's return to Bethlehem, in in her interaction with the women of the city, she displays blatant bitterness towards the Lord. Let's read those verses in verses 19 through 22. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? And she said to them, do not call me Naomi. Do not call me pleasant call me Mara, or call me bitter, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Well, I I think that what we have here is a grain of truth. Naomi is saying something that's partly right. The Lord has testified against her, The Almighty has brought calamity upon her, but she's not operating with any sense of ownership or responsibility for her own unfaithfulness to God or her need to repent. So the grain of truth is that God is acting. What she's missing, though, is that she's at fault. She needs to respond to God's faithfulness in repentance. But more so, she's failed to see God's mercy in her life. God showed himself merciful in two ways up to this point. One is by providing food so that when she returned to the land, there would be food for her there. But second, she completely overlooks that the gift of mercy that Ruth is to her. Ruth, along the way, though Naomi tried to get her to go back, made a covenantal pledge to be with Naomi the rest of her days. And and what's going on there is that instead of Ruth finding security in the home of a husband, she makes a covenantal pledge to Naomi saying, you will be my mother forever. I'm not going to marry some other guy and have a different mother-in-law. I'm going to stick with you and care for you and provide for you. Well, when, when Naomi gets back to the town, while Ruth is standing right next to her, she says, the Lord took me away full and he brought me back empty. Forget Ruth. Forget God's mercy in my life. And there's a grain of truth there because she was full in one sense. She had her family, but she was empty in in many other senses, including apparently the self-exile she was undergoing. I think Naomi's response to God's mercy 
or rather her lack of response to God's mercy, provides some fruitful threads for reflection. First, we just need to recognize that God's mercy precedes anything that we do, always. God gave her Ruth. God brought food to the land before she could act, before she could return. And and if that's true for her, how much more so is it true that God has acted in mercy before we would even have a chance to do a single thing? In this new covenant and in this era of redemptive history, you and I were all born after the birth and death and resurrection of Jesus, and there's no greater act of mercy than that. But beyond that, God is acting mercifully every single day in our lives prior to anything we could do to earn it. That's why it's mercy. It's this kindness that we don't deserve in place of punishment that we do. God acts in mercy prior to anything we could do. But second, I think we need to recognize from Naomi's example that we very often misinterpret the events of our lives and we fail to see God's merciful, faithful hand in them. If you're like me, whenever there's hardship in your life or or something doesn't go your way, you start to interpret that event in a particular way. I, I just have an awful life, or God doesn't love me, or why is everybody against me? Well, you're making a particular interpretation of the events that occurred in your day. Well, that's what Naomi's doing here is she's telling the women of the city, hey, don't call me pleasant, I'm bitter, and, and this is the way I'm interpreting the events of my life. Well, we need to pray that God would give us eyes of faith to see the events of our life clearly. And I think we need to welcome the community of faith to speak into our lives, to help us analyze and understand what God has been doing in our lives all along. Well, Naomi rejected her community of faith. She, She didn't listen to them. You have the opportunity to listen to your pastors and your fellow church members as they speak into your life and help you walk through the difficulties and challenges and blessings that God has brought into your world. This brings us then to the end of the story. We have to skip over a lot of the story, so a little bit of a spoiler alert here. Naomi helps Ruth uh, be in a position to where she could marry Boaz, and these, these two get married. And in chapter 4, the text tells us that God granted to Ruth conception. So this lady who was previously infertile has now had a child. They're happily married. And in a parallel scene to the end of chapter 1, where Naomi is with the women of the city, in chapter 4, verse 13, Naomi is once again with the women of the city. And the women, in verse 14, said to her, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse, and the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now, I think what's really interesting in this story is you don't hear Naomi say a single word. 
if the perfect parallel between the end of chapter 1 and the chapter 4 are there, then you have the women of the city speaking and you expect Naomi to respond. She did once in bitterness and now we want to hear her speak words of blessing to the Lord. While she takes the son into her lap, there's no word of blessing that's given to the Lord. And in this way, this story ends a little bit like the the story of Jonah, where Jonah's silent. Well, the difference there is that the the plant that grew up for Jonah that he received, um, that, that got taken away. Well, we don't see what happens next in Naomi's life. She's just silent. We want to hear words like this from Psalm 146 coming from her mouth. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord, his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. He lifts up those who are bowed down. He upholds the widows and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. That's what we want to hear coming from her mouth. But we hear nothing. But I think that's something of the point of the story. Because I think it's here that we're supposed to read ourselves into the life of Naomi. And we're put in a spot as we relate to her where we have to speak these words. Where we get to speak these words as we start to recognize God's faithfulness and mercy and discipline in our own lives. But with that unsatisfying conclusion to the story, we we need a word of hope. What hope does Naomi have to bless the Lord the rest of her days? What hope do you and I have to bless the Lord the rest of our days? Well, the narrator gives us this hope in the genealogy. This genealogy serves several purposes, I think, but one of them is that it positions the answer to our question, what is Naomi's hope? How can she respond in faithfulness to the Lord? Well, it's in the continued faithfulness of God to keep his steadfast love and promises, particularly through raising up the King David. He would preserve Israel and preserve his people through the Davidic line, and that line is present here. And and even more surprisingly, through the work of Naomi, through the hardships of Naomi's life, through the blessings and mercies given to her in the person of Ruth, God was working all along to preserve not just Naomi and to give hope not just to Naomi, but to all of Israel and King David. And the answer is the same for us. Because the New Testament authors pick up this genealogy and they trace it through, including Ruth in this line, and they show us that Jesus Christ is the greater son of David and he's the greater hope that we have so that we can forever bless the Lord as God works to be faithful in discipline and in mercy. Jesus Christ is that greatest mercy. So I want to encourage you if, if you are someone who would say that you have never responded to God's acts in your life in repentance and faith, to, to, you have hope in Jesus. And, and this is one reason why. Because we're outside of God's covenantal love for you that's found only in Jesus. Outside of that, the hardships in your life are only God's wrath on you in a temporary way that shows his greater wrath in the day to come. 
Without Jesus, all of your hardship, all of your suffering are indicators that you are bound for eternal judgment. But in Jesus Christ, as you connect to him in faith and repentance, what was once punishment and wrath is transformed into loving, faithful discipline. Because Jesus bore the punishment of sin for you. He took God's wrath for you so that there's no longer punishment. There's only loving, fatherly discipline. So I would call all of us to renew our faith in Jesus and to look to him. And as we navigate the sufferings of this world, to look at them through Jesus who bore God's wrath and transformed these things into discipline for God's glory and for our good. So Naomi's silence at the end of this story raises the question that's recorded in the catechisms. What then is our only hope in life and death? The answer, that we are not our own, but belong body and soul, both in life and in death, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, we confess that we fail to recognize your faithfulness both in discipline and in mercy. And so often we fail to respond appropriately in faith and repentance in humility and holiness. But we pray that you would continue to be faithful to us even when we're faithless, and that you would continue because of the mercies of Christ to hold fast to us so that when we walk through the sufferings of this life, we will remain held fast to you change us, grow us, produce in us humility and holiness in the fruit of righteousness. It's in Christ we pray. Amen.